Hello, my name is Jody Lima, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I am thrilled to be interviewing Kate DiCamillo, an author who has personally inspired me in so many ways. We got a chance to talk about her latest book, uh, Beverly, right here, as well as my personal favorite for anyone who asked me, and even those who don't ask, uh, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. Uh, we also had a wonderful conversation about her own favorite book, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963, by Christopher Paul Curtis. But first, as always, I'm going to start with a poem. And the poem today is called Overnight Ice, which is very appropriate for this cold day in December I happen to be recording this on. It was written by Barbara Davis, and I found it in the poetry collection Once Upon Ice and Other Frozen Poems, uh, which were selected by Jane Yolen with photographs by Jason Stemple. Overnight Ice Next time, this is what I'll remember when I'm afraid. The ice on my window. I'll remember how it filled up the glass where there was nothing before. Where there was nothing, and I could see clearly the full moon and stars. And then, while I slept, the ice came almost like a snowflake or a secret, spreading in the cold, making itself up in the dark. And this morning, it could be sugar or the mane of a pony or a rooster's comb that sticks my fingers to the window glass. I'll remember this morning's ice. It has the magic of the moon bubbling. My guest today is Kate DiCamillo, the Newbery Award-winning author of such books as Because of Winn-Dixie, The Tale of Despero, Flora and Ulysses, among many others, including my personal favorite, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. Her latest book is Beverly Right Here, which is the third book in the Three Rancheros series. In addition, she is National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, Emerita. You can find Kate's website at katedicamillo.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Kate. Oh, I'm so glad to get the chance to talk to you. As I mentioned, your latest book, uh, Beverly Right Here, is the third book in the, the Three Ranchero series. That includes uh, Ramey Nightingale and Louise, Louisiana's Way Home. And I, I read them all, and I just finished up uh, Beverly last week, and I'm very glad I had a chance to read it. And Oh, thank you for reading. Yeah, and I, my understanding is that you didn't necessarily set out to write a series, but the sort of stories that came to you. And I'm just wondering how Beverly's stories presented itself to you. Yeah, well, let's start with the whole idea that um, of not intending to, to go down this path of uh, doing, I wrote Ramey Nightingale. And usually what happens when I finish a book is that's that, you know, I get a lot of uh, requests to go back in and do sequels. And I've never, ever entertained the notion. But I finished reading, reading, writing Ramey and then just Louisiana's voice showed up like probably like a couple months after I finished. And it was very clear that she had a story to tell. And then I knew I was going to have to tell Beverly's. And Louisiana is kind of one of those characters who grabs you by the shirt collar and like demands that you listen. And with Beverly, it was, I knew that there was a story and I knew that she wanted it told, but it was um, kind of like crouching down and holding out your hand and trying to get a wild animal 
to eat out of it. You had to be very still, very quiet. And I had to wait for her to come to me. And she did. And um, it, it, the, the book is not in first person, but it is still very much like her. It's, it's, it's got her quietness and her, hopefully her uh, moral strength comes through. And um, it was a delight to write it. And it, was, it struck me as, as uh, both reading the book and thinking back at the other two books that uh, you know, Ramey and Louisiana, in their own ways, are trying to shape a narrative about their lives to try to tell a story to explain things. And sometimes that doesn't quite work out, whereas Beverly not just physically runs away, but is almost trying to run out of her own head. She doesn't oh. want stories. She just wants to. That's that's a beautiful insight. That is a beautiful insight. That is so true. They are, you know, Ramey's definitely trying to shape her narrative as in her life in the moment. And Louisiana is telling herself the story all the time. And you're right. Beverly's not, Beverly's just trying to run away from the narrative. And that's so much of what this book is about is her, I, I, I have thought of it as um, she's, she's able to help people and she's able to love people, but she's very uncomfortable with people loving her or people helping her. And, um, and in this book, she learns to let that happen, which is also, it relates to that, that point that you just made about narrative. It's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Would you, would you mind sharing a little bit of the book? Yeah. I think that what I'll do is just, um, start at the beginning because it gives you uh, a very good idea of who she is. And I'll just read a, a few pages. Chapter one. Buddy died and Beverly buried him. And then she set off toward Lake Clara. She went the back way through the orange groves. When she cut out onto Palmetto Lane, she saw her cousin, Joe Travis Joy, standing out in front of his mother's house. Joe Travis was 19 years old. He had red hair and a tiny little red beard and a red Camaro and a job roofing houses in Tamaray Beach. Beverly didn't like him all that much. Hey, said Joe Travis when he saw Beverly. I thought you moved to Tamaray, said Beverly. I did. I'm visiting is all. When are you going back, she said. Now, said Joe Travis. Beverly thought, Buddy is dead. My dog is dead. They can't make me stay. I'm not staying. No one can make me stay. And so she left. So that's just a little bit. <laughs> but you can, her, I think herself comes through there very strongly. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think of just even, and I don't want to give away everything, but just even the the last three words, I believe, it in the novel just says so much about her and where she's um, about just going inside. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to look at those words right now, um, and it does. Yeah, you're 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 a good reader. You're making all kind. It, it, it's funny because the book has been out for. Uh, what three weeks and I uh, you know you do interviews leading up to it you talk to people but you don't really know what the book is about until until people read it and you discuss it with them so now like your point about narrative I will take out into the larger world um, and it helps me understand the book and it helps me understand you know because so much of writing is um you're kind of writing behind your own back you know you don't you don't always know what you're doing. Now, I mentioned before that you, um, you're you National Ambassador for Young People's Literature Emerita. I'm just wondering, uh, what exactly 
is that and what does that involve? Um, it's, I'm impressed that I wonder how, how do you spell Emerita? And I wouldn't, if I encountered it on the page, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it. It just means that I was national ambassador for young people's literature and it's a two year term. And, um, what you do is you have, uh, a platform and mine was stories connect us. So just kind of a theme. And then, um, as the ambassador, you, uh, for me, at least it was, I, I went a lot of places that I wouldn't normally go. When you go on book tour, you go to a lot of the same places. This under, um, that program, I, I went further afield and I got to talk to more readers and, and just encouraged, um, people, children and adults to read, and to read together. And it was a huge honor to get to do it. And it was funny because, you know, you go out there with your message and my message was stories connect us. And what happened to me was like, there were so many times that I would I'd be standing in a, you know, an auditorium or a gymnasium or a community room or a library and, or a classroom. And I would like look out at the people and I would think I'm out here to deliver this message and what's happening is and this message is getting delivered back to me. I mean, I'm connected to all those people because of, of stories and books. It was a really moving experience. So just to make those connections uh, person to person, because imagine as an author, sometimes you're, you're a lot of times you're by yourself. So be able to go out and actually, you know, make connections with readers is always a great thing. It is, and it's um, it, and you are by yourself a lot, and and you talk to yourself a lot, and and I and the other thing is, I am very much an introvert. I'm a shy person, so if you you know, in theory, I think, oh, I don't need to to do that. I do need to do that. I mean, I find that I really need that connection with um, with the readers, and I'm so grateful to get it. I'm very much the same way, which just seems odd that I'm doing a podcast, but I'm very much the right, yeah, right, yeah. But it's like, but also you find that it um, feeds your soul in some way. Which actually uh, kind of leads into my next question. I mentioned uh, uh, a little bit that one of my favorite books of yours, actually one of my favorite books in in general, is uh, the Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, talking about somebody being very isolated, and I, and I did want to ask you about that. Uh, book just about um, where did Edward uh, the idea of Edward come from I received um, as a Christmas gift and, and it's funny because a, a lot of times you don't have concrete answers for uh, questions about where a story came from but this one is a very concrete answer and for a while when this book got published I would travel around with this rabbit doll that I received as a gift. Um, and, uh, it was Christmas. And when the friend handed him to me, I said, what's his name? And she said, Edward. And he's, uh, you know, he's about, I don't know, two and a half feet tall. He's dressed in a very elegant outfit. And, um, when she gave him to me, I, I took him home and put him on the couch in my living room. And then every time I walked into the living room, I would scream this little scream because he was kind of sitting there looking at me. And a, a creepy rabbit. And then I had um, a dream like the third night that he was in the house of him underwater and face down on the ocean floor with none of his clothing on. And uh, 
I thought, hmm, I wonder what that means. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a picture book. Maybe it's, you know, that's, it was a very striking image. And so I started with that image and then, and thinking that I was going to write something short and um, I sat down and it was, you know, this has never happened before or since because writing is very hard for me. Um, This just wrote itself. And, you know, I still did. um, Typically when I write a novel, I uh, rewrite it seven or eight times. And this one I rewrote four times. Um, It just, you know, I I didn't, I didn't, I never plan uh, what's going to happen in a book, but like everything that happened, it just happened without me thinking about it. It, 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 And I recognized it as a gift at the time. Um, and I, there was nothing I could do except be grateful for it, you know? So, and, and I still have the rabbit. He's in my office and sometimes I pat him on the head and say, you have been a very productive rabbit. That was, that was a great gift. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's just so fascinating that there really is an actual, um, uh, a rabbit that inspired you. That's, that's not something I would have, uh, uh, right. And it was so much fun to go up on stage with a brown paper bag and then to pull that rabbit out of the bag. It was great. Um, and he's not, he's not China. It's like melamine, which, and kids will say, but why, why did you make him China? And it's like, well, I remember my mother's dolls. Um, she grew up in the thirties and they were like made out of China and they had hinged arms. Like he has hinged arms and legs. And also China sounds good. It's, it's, it sounds right. Melamine doesn't sound so right. Mm. And it sounds much more fragile. Right, right, right. It does. It has all the implications of that. And then China leads you right to Egypt street. Um, for some reason, it's just musically, it gets you there, you know, once in a house on Egypt street. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a great book. You know, whenever I read it and whenever I get to the scene with, uh, Edward on the shelf at the end of the book, it always gets to me every time. I, I've been out, you know, doing, um, touring for Beverly and, and, uh, I have so many, uh, adult, uh, child combinations who will come through the line and say, uh, we read this together and I'll say to the adult, did you cry? And the adult always cries. And I'll say to the kid, did you cry? And they're like, no. <laughs> but but I, sometimes kids will say that they cry, and and I found that I can't get through the end of it. Uh, you know, one time I was doing a, an event um, in a big church, uh, and I was at a little girl raised her hand and said, "Everybody always reads from the same part of the books when they go out on tour. Can you read from your favorite part of the book? My favorite part is the end." And so I thought, sure, I can do that, and. Um, and then I lost it up there in front of everybody. So it's just, it, it's not my story. Um, I just got to tell it, you know. Well, uh, I'm glad you got to tell it. Yeah, me too. Me too. Now, the book you picked as one of your uh, personal favorite uh, books for young readers is uh, The Watsons Go to Birmingham, 1963. And this was written by uh, Christopher Paul Curtis, and it was uh, originally published in 1995. Uh, For uh, readers who might not have had the chance to read this as of yet, do you talk a little bit of what the book is about? Uh, It's mostly about family 
and love, and also this trip that the family makes uh, to Birmingham in 1963. But it's also about something that happens in Birmingham in 1963. Um, and so it's, it is historical fiction and what happens is terrible but there's so much love in this book and this book matters to me because um if i can give a little uh backstory that i i i started writing when i was uh 30 and i started where most people start which is writing short stories thinking that they're shorter therefore they're easier and that of course is not the case at all and uh, so those were short stories for adults. And then I got a job at this book warehouse and I was assigned to the third floor, which is where all the kids books were. And, um, and it took me a while, but I started to read those books and um, the Watsons go to Birmingham. 1963 is uh, one of the first novels written for kids that I read since I had been a, a kid. And, um, I just, I fell in love with it head over heels because of this thing where, because it's so warm and funny and filled with love. And then it talks about something um, that happens in Birmingham that's terrible, but it's, it's couched in this um, very warm, accessible storytelling. And there's so much voice to it. And I read it and I thought I had the, uh, you know, I want to try to do something like this. So without, this book, I don't know that I would be uh, writing for kids. It was kind of like what put the idea in my head. And it wasn't too long after I, I took a copy of it home and I typed up a, a chapter to see how long a chapter would be and then how long a manuscript would be. And then pretty soon after that, I started working on Because of Winn-Dixie, which was the first novel that I wrote. As you said, this is uh, very much about uh, family. Um, and one relationship in particular um, I, uh, I think about is the, the narrator, Kenny, and his uh, brother, uh, Byron, or Bi. Um, and uh, how would you characterize their sort of uh, not always easy relationship? <laughs> well, again, you, you know, it's very um, – it's contentious. Uh, it, Kenny, who is the, you know, our narrator, um, is the younger brother, um, Byron's older and cooler. Um, and so, and Kenny tends to be a little bit more bookish, but when push comes to shove, they are brothers and they protect each other, which then brings you back to the love thing again. Um, it is such a, it is such a loving family and, and also, this is such a funny book. And if you, there's a scene that happens very early on. Um, I mean, you can, you can pick it up and read the first couple paragraphs. And, and it, when you write, people always say, oh, it should have voice. And this is voice. What if I just read the first couple of paragraphs? Oh, absolutely. It, the first chapter is called, and you wonder why we get called the weird Watsons. It was one of those super duper cold Saturdays 
one of those days that when you breathed out, your breath kind of hung frozen in the air like a hunk of smoke, and you could walk along and look exactly like a train blowing out big, fat, white puffs of smoke. It was so cold that if you were stupid enough to go outside, your eyes would automatically blink a thousand times all by themselves, probably so the juice inside of them wouldn't freeze up. It was so cold that if you spit, the slop would be an ice cube before it hit the ground. It was about a zillion degrees below zero. And that's, <laughs> it just kind of leaps off the page. And then, you know, like if you've got a reluctant reader and you get to, you know, within this first chapter, <laughs> Byron is so enchanted with the way he looks that he, um, he makes the mistake of kissing his reflection in the side mirror of the car on a cold day like this and, and his lips get stuck. And so it is like literally like laugh out loud funny if you're reading that. And so you've got, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're dealing with reluctant readers, it's a wonderful book to put in their hands. Um, and it's also, it makes me think of, you know, like when I was a kid and I was always such a huge reader as a kid and I was aware that not everybody else was as passionate as I was. And there were two books that I knew that I could put in a kid's hand that they would want to read and would like and one of them was Pippi Longstocking and the other one was Mixed Up Files and Mrs. Basilie Frankwater and if I if this book had been around I would have felt like I could put that book in another kid's hands and they would love it it's just it's just a fabulous book yeah, uh, Byron is a particularly interesting character uh, to me. I mean, like you said, he's a little a bit vain, he's a little bit bullying, and yet, the, uh, and even though we see him only through Kenny's eyes, there's um, and there's a there's a real depth to him. He's just not a stereotypical, you know, bullying older brother uh, that you sometimes see in books. There's 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 a, there's a bit more going on that we get bits and pieces of uh, that Kenny tells us about. Yeah, and also there's, um, you know, ultimately, because um, there's a, some problems that Kenny encounters and where Byron does step in and he does it in a very casual kind of way. So there's this protective also telling Kenny about how the world works um, and he's he's keeping an eye on him all the time, even though he can be very crass, very bullying, but he also loves him and he's trying to show him the path, you know, and um, and this is a book, like I said, I don't want to give anything away, but that deals with something huge and terrifying. And um, those brothers need each other when that happens. I think of one particular scene with Byron where he throws a rock at a, a bird. And, you know, at first the scene plays out is, you know, this sort of just um, mindless cruelty that boys sometimes do. But his reaction uh, to uh, what happens is suddenly unexpected or not what we expected from what we've learned about him so far. And we realize there's something else going on uh, with him. Right. And it's just and that's. You know, I, I I read those first two paragraphs and I say as a writer, oh, you can, this is clearly, this is voice, that inexplicable thing, it leaps off the page and that's part of what good writing is. But good writing is also what you just talked about, which is characters are complicated, people are complicated and, and multifaceted and don't do what you anticipate them doing. And um, that's, you know, that's so much of what makes this a good book too, is that these are fully formed and 
complex characters. I want to go back a little bit to something that you mentioned, you know, is a very funny book, even though it deals with a very, you know, serious and terrible uh, moment in American history. Uh, But, you know, the first part uh, the book is very funny. I guess you could say about this book, it's it's very funny until it suddenly isn't. And I'm wondering, what's the, you know, why is that humor, you know, leading into the story so important to, you know, that moment when, you know, when it's really not funny anymore? Well, it acts as an effective, you know, there's there's a moment in here, I wonder if I was smart enough to mark it. I'm I'm a big fan of dog-earing pages. Did I? Did I? Oh, it's when they're driving to Birmingham. And, you know, this is the first, I mean, there's, there, there are things here and there where you can tell that, that this, this base note of, of the bad things is coming, but they can't, it's not really safe for them to stop. Um, and that's another historical you know, kind of fact. So they're driving from uh, Detroit to Birmingham, Alabama. It's a long drive, and they're uh, they stop in the in the mountains. <laughs> and Kenny gets out, and on every side of us were great big black hills, and behind those were even bigger blacker hills, and behind those were the biggest blackest hills. It looked like someone had crumpled up a pitch black blanket and dropped the weird Watsons down into the middle of it. <clears throat> um, and then. Uh, he looks up and he sees the stars. We all looked up and instead of seeing the normal amount of stars, it looked like there had been a star explosion. There were more stars in the sky than empty space. And I think about that and, and how that's kind of what the book does in general. It's more light and that humor is part of that light um, than, than darkness. There, you know, and that's, it's very, very subtle, but that's, that's the through line that runs through it. It's like, there are terrible things that happen. Um, but there, there's more light and more love than, than there is darkness. And showing that and how the family operates together and the, the love, even if they get on each other's nerves, uh, quite a bit, um, is important to show in that, that early part of the book. Yeah. And, you know, how do, how do we get through it? We, we get through it by loving each other. Now, it was interesting to me, you know, this is a, like I said, it's a historical novel that deals with, um, you know, um, a moment in down south, the racism, uh, and that occurred particularly in down south at the, in the time of the civil rights movement. And I thought it was interesting that what, what, um, uh, Curtis did where, um, he sort of embodies that hatred in this, this, Imaginary character, uh, the, the the wool pool, <laughs> right? Because he says it like his his uh, his grandmother, you know, with her southern accent, wool pool. Yeah, yeah. And at first, it's it's just this imaginary character that uh, you know threatens him when he tries to go swimming. But later on, he he sees it again in a very you know terrible moment, and it becomes something else you know it's sort of almost an embodiment of you know all the the hatred and fear and it's it's something that's it's kenny knows it's bad but he doesn't quite know what it is i just thought it was interesting curtis took that uh uh, that sort of uh creating this odd little imaginary character to represent that right and um but it's like you said it doesn't it, it it goes beyond words for all of us 
and particularly for a young boy, it it's like it you don't have words for it, and it and that kind of like the 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 thing that sucks you under, um, it and that's how it feels, and then it, there's actually a physical. We again we don't want to give away too much, but like it is made funny by the mispronunciation, you know, mispronunciation where we're using the Southern accent to say it whirlpool instead of whirlpool. But it's, and that's part of his genius is this terrible thing is made funny, but it's also made accessible. You have some kind of language for something so terrible, you know? Yeah. Another thing that uh, Curtis does is um, he, um, you know, Kenny is a witness to uh, something very terrible. It's a very traumatic experience. And he doesn't make that the climax. He actually goes the next step and shows, you know, the trauma, actually, that uh, Kenny experiences by being a witness, uh, the the whole going behind the couch. Yeah, the pet, the, the pet hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just think that... It's why it would be important to show not just the 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 event itself, but also the um, the effects. You know, these are things that uh, um, you know have a real emotional and physical effect on a person who is a witness to them. Right, and and that whole again, it's very subtly brilliant because again, he brings in. It's humorous because he talks about all the animals and how that's their job to get better back there. Either you get better or you don't, right? And so it's very accessible and it and it's slightly humorous. And then you're right; it does this thing where it's like this is what it's like to deal with um, with trauma. You know, you have to come out from behind the couch. Um, and I, you know, it would be fun to ask him <laughs> how much of that, you know, because if if I was talking about a book that I had written, um, I wouldn't know. It goes back to what we were saying about, you know, you figure out what, what a book is about and what you've done by talking to the readers. Um, I wonder how much of that was conscious on Christopher Paul Curtis's um, part, how much of it he knew that he was doing. Um, and, and part of it is just that he has so masterfully embodied a young boy's uh, view of the world. Uh, and I wonder how conscious he was about using those methods. Mm, I'd love the chance to talk to him about it sometime. Right, right. You should you should get him on the podcast. He's great. I, I got to thank him, you know, because I do feel like I really owe him a debt. Um, and he's, uh, we were doing, we were both doing the National Book Festival, and there was like a, a tent where you went for snacks and stuff. And I walked back there, and there he was. And I went over and introduced myself, and then I asked him if it was okay to hug him. And he's so tall that I was, and I'm so short. It was like basically like I was hugging his knees. Uh, he's a lovely human being, and um, I'm grateful to him. All of his books are wonderful. This is, this one is just the one that changed my life, and um, also that, you know, I just I have a special place in my heart for because it was the first one. Oh, sure. Sure. Oh, I understand. I understand. Um, what, what do you think the, the value of, I mean, this is, like you said, it's historical fiction. It deals with, um, you know, a specific, uh, incident, you know, of the, um, like I said, the racism in the South and the uh, civil rights movement. Now, what's the value of 
because uh, this is mostly you know a fictional story. The the Watsons are are uh, fictional characters. And what's the value of telling stories like this, fiction stories in particular, uh, as a way of looking at? Um, that particular time, or even just talking about um, uh, race in America and racism? Because I think that w w it lets us, it's just what we've been doing now, um, because it humanizes it so much. And that because you have characters that you love, because you love, you love these, these people, you love this family. And then it's a way in to talking about um, the larger, you know, the whole context of what was going on then and, 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 and what's going on now. And you can link it all together through people that you love. And also that thing that, you know, you were saying about the whirlpool, the whirlpool, and also the, uh, the Watson's pet animal hospital where you go behind the couch to try to recover from life's traumas. It's just, it gives you a, a, a very concrete way to talk about emotions surrounding um, these historical facts. Yeah, they're not just uh, facts in a textbook, but they're, you know, involved real people with real consequences. Right, right. And and you can, you know, it's that beautiful thing that, that we now know to be a scientific fact that um, reading literature um, increases your ability to empathize. Um, and so, you know, they the scientists say that when you read, she picked up the pencil, you read that sentence, the synapses in your brain that would be involved uh, if you were actually picking up a pencil uh, fire the same as if you were, even though you're just, you're just reading it. So something miraculous happens with empathy and literature, and, um, and we need to bring you know, that empathy to historical facts. Too. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now I know you had a, a chance to uh, share a couple of passages uh, from the book while we were talking. Were there any other parts of the book that you wanted to share? I I, I should flip through and <laughs> and find that that opening scene with the here. I'm gonna have you'll be able to hear the pages turning. Where <laughs> you know they call their car the Brown Bomber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Buphead is uh one of uh Byron's friends who's you know he can get in a lot of trouble. Uh and he <laughs> Well first thing okay, wait a minute, I'm getting there. I I can't believe how uh I moved closer, and when I got right next to him, I could see boogers running out of his nose and tears running down his cheeks. These weren't tears from the cold, either. These were big, juicy crybaby tears. I dropped my ice chunk. Bye. What's wrong? Help me, Keith. I moved closer. I couldn't believe my eyes. Byron's mouth was frozen on the mirror. He was stuck as a fly on flypaper. I could have done a lot of stuff to him. If it had been me with my lips stuck on something like this, he'd have tortured me for a couple days before he got help. Not me, though. I nearly broke my neck trying to get in the house to rescue Byron. <laughs> and it gives you a whole idea of that, like the the relationship between them. But it's also just if you do if you read it out loud to a group of people, it's so funny, you know. 
That's a great, it's just, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I said, I said a great way into a story with a scene like that. It is. It is. It's just like it's kind of impossible to put it down from that point. Um, and, and you kind of become a member as a reader. You become a member of that family. Mm. And I think I read it was his first book. It's his first book. He was, um, he was working the way I understand it. He was uh, working uh, on the line uh, at. Uh, he lived in Detroit, working on the line at a, I think a GM plant, and um, he would go uh, to the library after work and write, write, and he wrote the book. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, don't don't take my word for all those details. I don't know if it was GM or not, but I know that he he was working in a car plant when he wrote it. Well, uh, Kate, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me about Beverly and Edward and the Watsons. Give me a chance to reread the book. It's been a little while since I had a chance to read it. And uh, just thank you for taking the time to talk to me about all these books today. Uh, it has been uh, deeply satisfying to, to, to talk with you. And, and I think we did pretty well for two introverts, right? I think so. <laughs> thank you. You can find Kate's website at www.katedicamello.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at dreamgardensjlm. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in the Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.